This episode is brought to you by Brothers and Bonds Co. With an expertly curated line of Masonic apparel, gifts, and accessories, we're excited to show you what makes us uniquely Brothers and Bonds. As a listener of this podcast, we're offering you 10% off your first order with us. Just use code F3K at checkout. That's all uppercase, F as in Foxtrot, the number three, and K as in Kilo. Be sure to find us on Instagram or at brothersandbonds.com. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Brother Chris Earnshaw to discuss China and Freemasonry. You're listening to The First Three Knocks, a Masonic podcast in the District of York, where we discuss topics for the betterment of Masonry. The opinions discussed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not represent the views of Grand Lodge or any other Masonic body. Now, here are your hosts. Good evening, brethren. Good evening. Hello, hello. We are back in the temple. And it's Tuesday. Tuesday, Temple Tuesday. Almost like normal again. It's not that cold (laughs) up here. No, uh, Came about an hour ago just to make sure that we had the fire stoked so you guys could stay warm. The fire stoked. There's a tiny heater over here. (laughs) I noticed you moved from the other side of the room from Sprotty over to us, which you could call. You moved close to the heater this uh, this time. (laughs) Moved across the room. Hello out there, our audience. Uh, we are very glad to be back with you. I am Worshipful Brother Bertelier, the past master of the Rising Sun Lodge in Aurora, Ontario. And uh, your co-host, Brother uh, Junior Warden, uh, Brother Gino Scovio, also of the Rising Sun Lodge, number 129 in Aurora, Ontario. And Brother Steve Sprott here of Zerid at the Lodge, number 220 in beautiful and historic Uxbridge, Ontario. Is still people over there, Steve? <laughs> We're snowed in over there. Snowed I was in. Say they got like what, like eight feet of snow up there. <laughs> Jeez. We have an incredible guest with us this evening. Very excited to introduce Venerable Brother Christopher Earnshaw, who is coming to us from Tokyo. So it is Tuesday evening here in uh, North America, and it is Wednesday morning in Tokyo, Japan. <laughs> uh, welcome, uh, uh, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm coming to you from the future. From the future, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, Christopher is uh, one of the most experienced Masons I think we'll probably ever have had on the show. He is uh, a scholar and a gentleman. Um, he is author of six books in Freemasonry. Two of those are in Japanese. He is a neuroscientist and runs a medical device company in Tokyo. He lectures at uh, School of Social Science at Waseda University former professor of Asian studies. He has done significant research into China and the origins of modern Freemasonry based on Taoism. So really excited to learn more about this topic in spiritual Freemasonry. Um, He's host of his own podcast and involved in a podcast, Freemasonry in seven minutes or less, which you can find on Anchor. He has his own YouTube channel, Spiritual Freemasonry. Um, and he is a registered Masonic speaker. And that's, that's just some of the interesting work he does. From a Masonic standpoint, he is the past Grand Historian of the Grand Lodge of Japan. He is the past master of six 
six times he's been the past master of a lodge in uh, three different um, lodges, so really impressive. Past chairman of education of the Scottish Rite and past master of research lodge of the Grand Lodge of Japan. Wow. 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 What a... <laughs> what a uh, Long list of accomplishments. Uh, real pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Uh, Chris, uh, what we like to do with uh, all of our guests is learn a little bit more about your Masonic experience. You know, like how did you get involved in, in Freemasonry? Clearly, you've been deeply involved in Freemasonry for, for a while, but we'd love to learn about how you got involved with Freemasonry. Yes. So, um, my family, on both sides of my family, uh, have long history in Freemasonry. However, I wasn't really aware of it, and um, nobody talked about it. So, in England, we're not very open about Freemasonry, as um, Masons are, say, in America. And so, we just knew that my father or my grandfather would, would just go away in the evening and come back little bit merrier <laughs> and um but one uh thing that really stood out in my when i was about 17 uh, my grandfather was uh ill and he was staying at our house and um one evening the speaker of the house of commons appeared on the doorstep and i i was the aunt, i answered the door and I immediately recognized the person because I'd seen him on television. I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> anyway, he'd come to, he'd come to see um, uh, my grandfather, see how he was. Well, Speaker of the House of Commons is probably the equivalent of uh, Nancy Pelosi in America. Yeah, you know? right. And if you're just living in you know, the um, suburbs of London and Nancy Pelosi turned up, it was unannounced. Impressive. You no, know, it was a little bit of surprise, and then it got me thinking, you know, about how Freemasons uh, they look after each other, and um, so when it, it when I became eligible um, and I had an opportunity, I also made a, um, I also made application to join. Incredible, incredible. So, uh, once you joined, were you involved with your with your family in Freemasonry? No, because by that time I was in Japan. I moved to Japan when I was 20. Okay. Um, what happened was I had applied to Cambridge University to study Japanese. Um, however, I, I'm not a very academically strong person. Um, I don't seem to do very well uh, in organized education like high school. Um, so I applied to university to take a gap year. Uh, which is a one-year holiday before um, entering to university to get all that youthfulness out, you know, all the sense of adventure, go do some volunteering or go to Africa, join the Peace Corps, whatever. And then to go to university. I, I think uh, universities appreciate that. Well, I went, I came to Tokyo for my gap year and I didn't Never go left. back to university. I stayed. <laughs> that's a long gap. I went here. to university. In, I went to university in Japan instead. Wow, that's incredible! <laughs> what uh, what a brilliant experience that must have been for you. What, what was it like when you first arrived? I mean, how how did you manage yeah. with the language and, and the culture? Well, it's rather like how an otter teaches a baby otter to swim 
they just throw the, the baby into the river. <laughs> got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I got to figure it out. And that's kind of what happened to me. Um, I, I, I'd actually um, bought a Lingaphone. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers Lingaphone, but it was a language teaching system on tapes, small cassette tapes. And um, Lingaphone, uh, when I ordered it, uh, Lingaphone course in Japanese, nobody had ever ordered it. So somebody came to my house to make sure it wasn't a prank. That <laughs> <laughs> I actually really wanted to study Japanese. I was surprised. Anyway, um, but I, I studied a little bit. So when I came to Japan, um, but there were so few foreigners when I came here in the 70, 1974, I think. And so, um, yes, it was interesting. You know, there was um, still a lot of prejudice against foreigners because there were so few of us mm -hmm. but on the other hand it was still fresh and um, new and exciting and interesting and really it's just got better ever since Th things improve in Japan all the time wow. uh, the way of life um, the transport system the quality the variety of foods available and things it just gets better all the time in Japan it's my personal opinion Fantastic. Yeah. How how did you um, grow in Freemasonry in Japan? I mean, we obviously know very little about... Yeah, where, where do you start when where it comes start? to looking yeah. for Freemasonry yeah. in Japan? Especially, again, being not somebody who can speak the language so so quickly and all that right. stuff, right? Yes. So, for the first 25 years, <clears throat> I've been a, a Mason now for about 35, 36 years. Uh, first 25 years, uh, it didn't really click. Uh, I was just attending meetings and um, doing my bit. And then I was um, uh, elected to be the master of the, the lodge. And because we have a unique situation in Japan, we have lodges for, from five different constitutions here. Oh. Um, the reason being is that the uh, Grand Lodge of Japan wasn't established until... Uh, 1957, but before 1957, there were already lodges from the Philippines, uh, Prince Hall, mm -hmm. Massachusetts, England, and Scotland were already here. So um, they were um, uh, uh, they had a prior right to be uh, uh, working in Japan. So when the Grand Lodge of Japan was established, we now have five different constitutions, actually six. Wow, that's so incredible. until so, I joined um, uh, four of those lodges, four different constitutions, to see what the difference was, and to kind of study it. But it didn't really click until about nine, after I was a uh, master of a lodge, and I think it was about ten years ago. I started thinking, well, why did three um, uh, educated uh, people, who are fairly busy people, and they were uh, members of the gentry, why did they decide to rewrite the ritual of a stonemason's guild? You know, they weren't stonemasons and they weren't manual workers. Why would they bother? <laughs> it's like, like a doctor um, now going down to the docks and um, asking to help out with with um, the stevedores or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it it just doesn't didn't click to me for me. And um, then I thought, 
well, why did they bother to not just rewrite the ritual, but then why did they add a third degree? Why bother? You know? why, why add the third degree? Wasn't two enough? <laughs> and so these sort of things. And then, then um, what was so special about it that uh, the members of the aristocracy not only joined them, but became the grand masters of this unique organization. Well, when operative Freemasons were working before the speculatives were established, the aristocracy didn't stand up and say, we want to be grandmasters of operative Freemasons. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know? So what is so special about it? You know, these sort of questions I started asking myself and, you know, then I started to educate myself and that's when Freemasonry came alive for me. <clears throat> When you were asking these questions I mean, to yourself, obviously, but I assume you must have had the opportunity to speak with more experienced Masons. Would that be fair to say? Well, um, I think most of my education was done online okay. um, through, through books and reading. <clears throat> I have a, a, quite a lot of books on... Uh, I'm also a member of the um, Scottish Rite Research Society and they send me books every year, two books, which is a really good deal. It's a, a one-time payment for the rest of your life you receive two books every year. And um, so, yeah, so that joining Scottish Rite also helped me to find some more answers that I were looking for. Well, you certainly found answers. I mean, you've published <laughs> six books. Yeah, I was going to um, say quite a few. The, the Spiritual Freemasonry series, uh, I think you have four books in that series, yes. Initiation yes. by Light, Spiritual Alchemy, Quest for Immortality, and Royal Arch. Can you, can you talk Correct. about those books a little bit and tell us? Uh, what, I'd love, I'd yeah. love to. <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, originally it was a single book, and um, I showed it to um, a publisher, and... Um, uh, Lewis Masonic Publishing, they were interested, but they said the book was kind of too big. I think it was like 800 pages. And in publishing, there's a kind of break-even point where the publisher actually makes money. And if the, the actual uh, publication and uh, of the book, making the book, um, printing, binding, distribution, if it's too high, then they don't get a return on, on their sales. And in fact, the, the Royal Society in England had exactly the same problem uh, in the early days publishing some of the larger books. Um, there was a, a history of fish, and it was such a beautiful book. It was so expensive, they couldn't sell it, but they had lots of them. And um, uh, so this is not a new problem. And so the publisher suggested I break the book into a single book for each uh, degree. So... Initiation by light is exactly what it says. Um, Freemasons are initiated by light. But there's actually more to it than that. Um, by a serendipity, I found that uh, Chinese Taoists also initiate by light. Those are the only two groups in the world that do this. Uh, other religions initiate by water, for example, like Catholicism. Um, others such as Wicca or Zoroastrianism, they use fire, but nobody initiates by light except Freemasons and Taoists. 
I thought that was very interesting. Um, the second book uh, is the um, <clears throat> uh, Spiritual Alchemy, and it's based on the second degree, and that is exactly what it is. It's the second degree uh, has lots of elements from alchemy based, written into the degree. So, example, the easiest one is the three, uh, the steps, three, five, seven steps. Three uh, represents the three materials, the tria prima, that are used in alchemy, uh, which is um, mercury and sulfur and salt. Previously, they had used mercury, sulfur and magnesium, but as magnesium is an explosive uh, under uh, difficult to use material and uh, it can explode very easily uh, something around the 1600s uh, the magnesium was replaced by salt so these three materials represent the three steps the five represents the five colors that these three materials change into during the alch alchemical process so first of all you burn it it turns black and then it turns white and uh, then it turns yellow, then red. Somewhere in the process, you get this magical color, which they call uh, uh, powder carvonis, which means the tail of the peacock. So it's a, it's a kind of multicolored uh, color. <laughs> it's a, little bit, uh, a color of many colors. And somewhere in the process, after the white or the yellow, uh, you get this. And this is, represents the five steps, five colors, five steps, uh, of the in, the in the degree and the seven is the seven processes that you had to go through to um, try to make gold from a base metal uh, e.g. lead and the five steps are things like dissolution burning separation uh, precipitation things like this so there are seven steps in the kind of chemical steps and so the um, spiritual alchemy talks about uh, how the second degree represents alchemy as was understood in the West. However, the series is called Spiritual Alchemy. Uh, in, the, in the 1600s and 1700s, actually it was, 1700s was the end of alchemy in, in, uh, in the West. Hmm. The Royal Society had started in 1660. They were now looking at things as sciences, as individual studies. So there was chemistry and um, <clears throat> uh, physics and geology. Previously, it had been lumped together as natural philosophy. It was an interesting expression, but natural philosophy was the study of everything, uh, including optics and geology, geometry, everything all lumped together. But the Royal Society then divided it out they set up academies, and so you had the Academy of Physics, the Academy of Medicine, and it got organized. And at that time, alchemy was seen as being a medieval superstition. Mm -hmm. Very few people had been able to make gold from lead. Uh, in reality, it is possible. Uh, in, using modern techniques, people have made gold out of lead, but it's what they call a pyrrhic victory. Because you use so much resources, such as electricity, it is so expensive to do. The amount of gold does not uh, justify the experiment itself. Hmm. So you're wasting your time trying to make gold out of lead. It's 
it's possible, but <clears throat> not. <laughs> so that's the second book. The third book is The Quest for Immortality, and that's the third degree. The third degree, if, if you look at the ritual carefully, you will see that the word immortality is in many places, at least five places, like um, the soul that never, never, never dies, or the um, uh, the hope um, the hope for glorious uh, die in the hope of a glorious immortality. So many people believe that the third degree is about death and dying. In fact, it's about immortality. Uh, why this is important? At jo uh, exactly at this time in England. Um, there were uh, people writing books saying that the soul didn't uh, exist. It was a, what they called a, a heathen invention. Oh. Well, the, the church didn't take to this very kindly. And of course, in those days, the church was extremely powerful. They have um, seats in the uh, called, they have seats in the House of Lords. So the archbishops uh, bishop and archbishops sit in the Lord. They're called the Lord's spiritual. You know, so they're actually part of the the law uh, production. I think my English, I forget the English word sometimes. The the production of the law, the, the writing of laws. So they're, they're from the early days, they were involved in it. So for people to say that the soul didn't exist, this was blasphemy. However, at the time, uh, the law on blasphemy was very kind of um, uh, had been weakened and the church's position also had been weakened so people f became um, uh, ennobled no not ennobled they became um, uh, they felt this was an opportunity to start talking about whether the soul existed or not right. and it got to a point that it was even discussed in the house of commons you know and so because of the church's str strong position, these books were banned. They were burnt by the public executioner. And when you do that, it just increases people's interest. They want, Why did they burn this book? And they want <laughs> So then the book was published overseas in Amsterdam and then smuggled back into the country. <laughs> anyway, so that's the quest for immortality. And um, so Freemasonry is about a quest for immortality. And then the final one is the uh, Royal Arch. Many people believe that the Royal Arch is the fourth degree. Uh, personally, I do not agree. I think it's, there are only three degrees. The Royal Arch was actually more of an operative Freemason's ritual. Uh, it was in, inherited from the, uh, from the Grand Lodge of the Ancients. And in 1813, when the the moderns, which was the Grand Lodge of England, and the ancients, when they, they joined to form the United Grand Lodge of England, ugly, mm -hmm. <laughs> in 1813, then uh, the uh, speculative masons had to accept Royal Arch as the a kind of fourth degree. But it was done with a kind of bad, bad, uh, bad feeling. Um, if you read... Um, the Constitution of the United Grand Lodge of England, uh, they say that Freemasonry is only three degrees and the Royal Arch. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
They don't say Freemasonry is four degrees. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> Freemasonry is only three degrees, and, the and you have the Royal Arch. <laughs> and those guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the others. <laughs> so that explains the four. And it, the other thing is from uh, the, the book on <clears throat> uh, initiation by light and Royal Arch, they introduce the, my idea that Freemasonry was uh, based on Chinese Taoist teachings. Mm -hmm. And so the first and the fourth book kind of tie everything together. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that topic? Because I think for our audience, uh, most would not be aware that there is that influence. Right. I don't, I don't think anybody is aware, and that's why I'm reaching out to people. To, um, I, I, so I don't want to be dogmatic and say this is what happened. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say this is maybe what happened. Please think about it, you know. And um, in my books, I introduce uh, about 26 correspondence between the ritual of the speculative Freemasonry and the ritual used by Taoists. There are 26 things that are exactly the same. Um, <clears throat> so what happened was, uh, at university, I studied Japanese and Chinese at London University as an external student. And I recommend this to uh, other people who are thinking of studying at university because it's very good value and um, you can <clears throat> hold down a job and study at the same time. So you, you don't amass these enormous student debts as you do in America. Uh, so it, it's a, a wonderful way to get a degree. Mm -hmm. So I was working at a pharmaceutical company at the time and in my spare time I studied for the degree. Uh, one of my special uh, sections, you had, to, you had to have specialties, was um, the philosophy of China. So I studied people uh, like Confucius, Lao Tzu, and third one, Mencius. Mencius was the disciple of Confucius. Well, <clears throat> Confucius lived about uh, 400 BC, and Mencius lived 300 BC. So they never met each other, but you know, kind of, he was the uh, the student of of uh, Mensa's grandson, or something like that. So um, I had an opportunity to visit Taiwan uh, in 2016 uh, to study more about Mensa's and Chinese philosophy. Taiwan's very close to Japan. We can get to Taiwan for a hundred dollars from Tokyo oh, by wow. air, so it's not so <laughs> <Fantastic>. far. <laughs> It's only an hour and a half, two hours flight. So I, I just popped on a plane and went down there to have a look. And I attended uh, the initiation uh, of a Taoist temple. And when I saw it, I immediately recognized it as being the same as the first degree of Freemasonry. And it, it blew me away. <laughs> it must have. And some of the things that I can talk about are, for example, a Taoist temple has three offices three senior officers. Um, they represent, uh, so like the, the three uh, tapers in a lodge, represent the, the sun, the moon, and the worshipful master. In China, uh, the three officers represent the sun, the moon, and the universe. <clears throat> and the senior, master, the senior person of the three is known as the light-transmitting master. He transmits light from the universe to the candidate. 
And I thought, wow, I've, I've heard this before <laughs> uh-huh. somewhere. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> exactly. And um, the, the lodge, when it opens, um, they light three candles before anything starts. And at the end of the, the ritual, the last thing they do is put out the candles. There were just so many things like cool. this. But it was, I wrote them all down and I ended up with 26 things. Even the way the lodge is, uh, our lodge is decorated, is so similar to the Chinese ritual. I was just blown away. So I had to write a book, just had to. <laughs> that is fascinating. So <clears throat> that suggests, just based on the time periods, that um, this is well before Freemasonry was established. That yes. we know of, yeah. So what's, how's the connection to, yeah. to Freemasonry? So, yes, exactly. This is what got me. So um, <laughs> in, in the uh, 1600s, we had the opium trade with England and China. Uh, it's a triangular trade, meaning that we, we grew the opium in India and then took it to China to sell. The Chinese gave us uh, silver and uh, chinaware, teacups and tea, which then we brought back to England. It was sold in England, and from then we went back to, to India to collect the, the opium, and it's a triangular trade like this. Well, um, the Chinese emperor did not appreciate that we were selling drugs to his people, <laughs> and uh, it ended up in uh, 1820 with the Opium Wars, and um, relations between uh, England and China went south very quickly. Um, so... How did it? So I thought from this experience, some of the um, the pilots or captains of the ship learnt about it when they visited China, selling uh, opium and collecting tea. But then I found that the dates didn't really well align. So then, um, through research, I found about uh, a Chinese Mandarin whose name is Shen Fuzhong. He, a Mandarin is like a, a minister, a senior official in the government. And this uh, minister wanted to become a Catholic priest. At the time, there were a lot of Jesuits in China, and they had built churches. This is between uh, 1600 and 1700. They built 400 churches across China. Uh, however, one of the stipulations by the Vatican was that uh, priests could not be made in China. You couldn't initiate a priest. He had to go to the Vatican for that uh, ceremony. Well, this Mandarin, <clears throat> Shen, he wanted to become a priest, so he got on a boat, went to Europe. It takes uh, six to eight months to wow. sail from China to Europe. <laughs> it, was it, very it was quite an investment. <laughs> That's a commitment. Yeah. That's a commitment. And also, yes, it's a, a, a serious commitment. Also, um, 30% of all ships never made it. They, they, they sank, wow. hit reefs, things like this. Bad weather. Uh, Bad a lot of people died of disease along the route. Mm-hmm. So it was a very dangerous thing to do. Anyway, he arrived. First he went to um, Paris and he went to London on his way to, to the Vatican. When he came to England, he spent a year and a half in England and he... <clears throat> Was lodge, lodging is probably not the best word, but um, uh, he stayed at Oxford University. The 
Um, at Oxford University, we have a famous library called uh, the Balliol Library, uh, sorry, the Bodleian Library, and uh, the senior chief librarian of the Bodleian Library um, was uh, Thomas Hyde. Thomas Hyde was a specialist in languages. Um, he taught himself Persian when he was uh, like 15. <laughs> they already spoke Latin. Um, they had The education was so different in those days, so it's difficult for us in modern times to understand. But they, they taught themselves um, uh, astronomy. Most people spoke, educated people spoke English and Latin. Some uh, studied Hebrew. They studied Hebrew so that they could study the Bible in the original language. You know, they weren't satisfied with the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. um, so this person was a linguist, and so he wanted to meet Shen and learn Chinese from him. And in fact, he did learn Chinese. Um, and not only that, he learned a lot of other things. And I believe uh, we, I've been able to read the letters between the two of them, which are kept at the British Museum. And uh, the when um, Shen left England and went to Portugal on his way to Rome, uh, they sent letters to each other. And these letters, they were talking about Taoist temples and things like this. So I believe that Shen taught Hyde about Taoism and the rituals and things like this. Hyde um, <clears throat> was uh, the, the, the country's senior linguist. So he was called in to translate uh, when diplomats and people visited from foreign countries. So he knew the king personally, King James II. And uh, he was in court quite a lot of times. He also knew Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle. Why is this important? Because these two are alchemists. So he knew uh, Thomas Hyde, who had all this information about Chinese rituals, knew these two alchemists. The two, um, Isaac Newton, knew the first three grandmasters of um, the Premier Lodge personally. Uh, John de Sagulier was Isaac Newton's secretary. You know, they spent years together, working together. Uh, George Payne, who was the other uh, grandmaster, he worked with Isaac Newton in the Royal Exchequer. The Royal Exchequer is uh, in America called the, the Treasury. And so the, the Exchequer in those days had different sections. One was to do with uh, printing money and making money, the mint. And then you had the other side to do with uh, government revenues and things like this. Well, the two, George Payne and Isaac Newton, worked together in the same building. They knew each other. So here we have alchemists who were friends with the first two grandmasters, and they, had, they were also friends with... Thomas Hyde, who had this interesting information about Chinese Taoist and a secret ritual and alchemy. So basically, de Sagulier and George Payne, they took this and they reassembled it and used the structure of operative Freemasonry to build this new organization, which later became called Speculative Masonry. Wow. That is phenomenal. <laughs> the connections there are just crazy. That's incredible. That's so... so then I, yeah. If I could give a little bit, I know you're sure. short for time, but yeah, no. um, a little bit of background. Well, you know, why would anyone be interested in this? So the thing is, there was a boom in Chinese things at that time. Um, 
I teach social science, so uh, uh, I, I tell my, my students, you've got to look around the situation, you know, when you, it's not what people were doing, but what were the influences around you at the time? And um, <clears throat> so one of the things that was happening, there was tea started to be imported from China in 1660. Uh, before that, people only drank coffee. That was based, again, on, on uh, England's uh, expansion of the colonies into the Caribbean, into Africa, where they got coffee and they brought it back. But the, the route to China hadn't really been developed. And then in 1660, uh, then you had the, the British ships going to trade and taking opium, etc., and they're bringing tea back. So there's a boom in tea. And then the silk became very, very popular. And then furniture, Chinese furniture, and a new design called Shinwazerie was based on this. Um, it was furniture was designed with dragons and strange landscapes and mountains and things like this. And it became very, very popular in Europe. And uh, Shinwazerie didn't just represent furniture, but also wallpaper. Uh, wallpaper in those days was hand painted. They didn't. They couldn't print such big things, um, <clears throat> and so hand painted uh, uh, wallpaper was seen to be the style. If you were rich aristocrat and you wanted to show off your wealth, well, what better to have hand painted Chinese wallpaper? Yeah. And then they have all these teacups, and they had people were collecting enormous collections of teacups and pots and whatever they, you know, and. Um, then it got even, it, it got further than that. Uh, people started designing uh, Chinese gardens and uh, Chinese ornaments, uh, uh, decorative ornaments on the houses, like Chinese roofs where the, the ends curl up. And um, <clears throat> the Prince of Wales, who was our first royal grand master, he became King George IV uh, in 1820. In uh, 18, uh, 1760, I forget the date, 60 something, uh, he became, when he was the Prince of Wales, he became the first royal Grand Master of the Grand Lodge. He decorated his house in Chinese things. Uh, he built a, a holiday house in the south in Brighton called the Royal Pavilion. And it's full of Chinese things. So there was a boom across the country. Mm -hmm. And when, when the royalty does something, then the aristocracy... Mm -hmm. Copy them. It's like influencers nowadays, yeah. you know, or uh, um, the star system, people like uh, Madonna and Taylor Swift, people copied them. And that was what's happening in England. The, the rich people had money to buy this Chinese thing. So uh, then people copied and the whole country had this boom. And it went on not just a few years, but a hundred years. Wow. Until then we had the opium wars and then trade was stopped by the Chinese. They would no longer export anything uh, out of China. And suddenly there was nothing. Well, then what happened, surprisingly, uh, in, um, again, about, I think it was 18, 1890, Napoleon went to Egypt. And then suddenly Egypt became the flavor of the month. And it became something we called Egyptomania. And then what happened is people started saying, well, is Egypt the root of Freemasonry? And now we have all these stories about gypsies and uh, <laughs> Egypt. And then people were designing Egyptian degrees, you know, like Cagliostro and his e Egyptian degrees. So 
So you can see by looking at the history how Freemasonry just kind of followed along. With, <clears> yeah, with yeah. society. That, that's really fascinating. Um, I mean, we haven't heard this this um, theory before, and, and, and I don't mean it as a, an insult as a theory. I, mean, I know you've oh, researched no. this extensively. Have you had a lot of pushback from uh, Masons or any any Grand Lodges around around this topic? Um, not pushback, but uh, for example, so many people are set in the understanding that Freemasonry is a charity. Initially, it wasn't a charity. I think it was a spiritual experience that people were building uh, to develop the soul of the person. So you could have uh, understanding of what immortality was, because that's what's emphasized in the third degree. When I, uh, so everybody says, no, no, this is a fraternity to make people better people, and we give a lot of money to charity. But if I promote a different story, suddenly they, they become very cold, <laughs> and they don't answer my emails. <laughs> right. It's not exactly pushback, but I think it's so different from anything anyone's ever thought of before. You know, if I said Freemason is based on Egyptian teaching, no, every, everyone would accept that, you know, that because it's been done before. Yeah. You know, um, uh, in, in my book, uh, in Royal Arch, I introduce several um, people who talk about Freemasonry being based on Rosicrucianism or Freemasonry based on Egypt or Pythagoras. Yeah, these are just guesses, you know. Right. There's no real history there to support it. But with the Chinese, you know, it, 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 the Chinese were so exotic in those days. Um, you know, for example, there's one small thing. I think I can say this without um, uh, breaking my oath to the, the craft. But we, we, um, pro uh, we've promised that we will not uh, write down the secrets. We won't copy any word or um, I forget this point, part, uh, symbol, sign, word, letter, or character. It finishes with character. We don't have characters in, in England. We have, we have letters. That's a good point. That's what good does point. character could be Chinese characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the rituals, there's character. And when you think of China, well, character sounds like it could be Chinese, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to dispute these, uh, these, you know, conclusions that you've come up with in your research because so much of their teachings tie into exactly what we go through in the rituals, yeah. as you mentioned. And, and it's yeah. just, again, how yeah. do you, how do you say, well, oh, they made it up or whatever the case might be. It's, it's hard to dispute it. You have to really kind of ask those questions and say, Hey, I wonder where the influence came from. Or where it all originated yep. from, right? So that's that's. I mean, again, up until this point, we've never heard these uh, these sides of where <laughs> things might have uh, come from, and it's amazing. Well, I think it makes Freemasonry much more rich, a richer experience for people. Uh, and then, one of the problems I find is that people get disillusioned when they've been a Mason for three, five years. It's the same thing all the time. Yeah, and they say, well. Where's the spiritual teaching? What's so special? What am I learning? And when you start thinking in Chinese ways, suddenly a whole new field opens up. And the interesting thing is that Taoism isn't a religion. It's a way of life. Yeah, and philosophy. they specify that. Yeah. It's Freemasonry isn't a religion. It's a way of life. Absolutely. <laughs> One way of putting it. 
<laughs> That's phenomenal. Um, what, where does your research lead you next? I mean, what, what is on your agenda in terms of uh, expanding this or other topics? Where, where are you headed? Um, yes, so I'm now writing a book on um, uh, education for the Lodge. Basically, they are just short 10-minute uh, lectures followed up by questions to ask the brethren to get them thinking, to get them to read books. So few people actually do research, their own research. And I think this is a very valuable opportunity. So that is my next project. Fantastic. I'm halfway through. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, and the background can be seen on my YouTube channel. I have 60 or so videos that I talk about individual things. You know, for example, on a past master's uh, apron, it looks like there are three levels. But these are not levels. These are Tau crosses. And so what is Tau? What is a Tau cross? You know, and so it, it takes you back, you know, and why are they on a past master's, you know? <laughs> well, in the first degree, when you, when you stand uh, with your feet as an entered apprentice, you're making the Tau cross. It's a kind of T. That sign of Tau cross is the original sign for immortality. People don't know that, you know. It's, uh, it's, yeah, we it's don't. Rituals <laughs> I'm thinking of your, your apron right now. You're going, wow. Like, yeah. Again, it's a different way to look at it now. That's, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. brilliant. Just brilliant. You know, yeah, I, and then so when you get to the third degree, past master, you have three towel crosses. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, the royal arch, the secret sign is the three triple towel, towel three towel crosses. So as a master mason, you're now entitled to become a royal arch mason. One of the sticking points in the early days is that only past masters could become Royal Archmasons. Oh, okay. And that's on your apron. It shows you you've got three Tau symbols, three, three Tau crosses. Therefore, you're entitled to become a Royal Archmason. So to get round this, they introduced the past master's degree, which is in between the third degree and the Royal Arch. So you have the most excellent master and the past master in between. And that's a, but you're not a past master, <laughs> which is strange. You're, you're initiating people as a past master, but they're not past masters. <laughs> <laughs> well, is, it's a little bit amazing. strange. <laughs> yeah, it is, that is really phenomenal. Um, <laughs> Brother Chris, you, you mentioned your YouTube channel. Um, how, how do people uh, find your YouTube channel? Like, what, what is, uh, what is your YouTube? Go to YouTube and type uh, Spiritual Freemasonry, and God willing, it'll, it'll open up. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That's a great resource. Yeah, yeah. My books are on Amazon, and um, uh, I would recommend, they are not numbered, but I would recommend reading Initiation by Light first, because that's the first degree, it gives the Chinese background, etc. And um, uh, people have, spoke, have spoken well about the book, I'm quite happy to say. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think, too, if uh, after we air this podcast, if we have any listeners out there that want to learn a little bit more, I'm sure they can find you through these methods. But uh, if, if worse comes to worse, they can also reach out to us and we can put you guys uh, in touch with uh, Brother Chris here that uh, would be yeah. happy to share some more in depth. I mean, I think we just scratched the surface <laughs> of what you yeah. were sharing with us tonight. And I'm sure it sounds like there's a lot more depth that we can uh, certainly go into. But uh, we do want to... Uh, uh, move along and, and kind of maybe we'll have you back to uh, 
follow up on some of these yeah. questions we might get or, or questions you've now given us to start thinking about. Questions here, we have now. My head's just <laughs> swirling once again. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Brother Chris, we thank you again for joining us uh, on the first three knocks here. And uh, just want to give a quick message out to all our listeners out there in uh, in uh, internet land and in, in podcast land. Uh, again, thanks for supporting and uh, listening and travel safe, friends. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The First Three Knocks. Happy to meet, sorry to part, happy to meet again.